Well, hopefully, I'm hoping what I talk about tonight will have practical application to the practice that we're doing and what you're going through on the second day of the retreat, more generally what people are going through. Um, <clears throat> the attraction for me to, in the early days of my practice, to uh, Buddhism per se and meditation specifically was I think in the philosophy of what the Buddha spoke of, he was always so clear that what he was teaching was uh, the highest happiness. He was teaching about the ending of suffering, the sure heart's release. And in a way, I mean, it sounds kind of crass, I didn't put it to myself that way at the time, but the sense of, well, that's what to go for in life, the highest sense of happiness, whatever will make me truly lastingly happy and I feel talking to people who come on retreat in one way or another that tends to be what draws us to go through this rather difficult and sometimes strange process a kind of hope or faith or whatever word is suitable for you of some higher happiness some more sense of serenity at least or ease in one's life and um in first, first practicing, in my first retreats, and in many people's, you might touch moments of <clears throat> what to you seems like a, a higher happiness or a sense that we're somehow heading in the right direction. It could be the momentary peace of concentration, that, that kind of bliss of a unified mind. It might be an ecstatic sense of interconnection. It might just be the simplicity of peace of being fully present. I mean, there's a whole range of things it can be. And for some time in my practice, it was experiences like that that kept me coming back, thinking, oh yes, this shows I'm heading in the right direction. And it really took a while before I began to get it on some deep level that all this was is a continuation of search for pleasure. That I was taking pleasant experience, maybe a little more transcendent, maybe a little more subtle than I experienced in my daily life, and equating that with true happiness. And really what the Buddha is talking about and what our meditation practice here is about is finding that happiness, the true happiness the Buddha was speaking about, is of a whole other order. It's for what most of us think of as happiness is not what the Buddha was speaking about as the true source of happiness, the true heart's release. We mostly don't know what true happiness is. And a lot of what I think our practice here is about is finding out what, what we're doing wrong, so to speak, how we're relating to our lives in the world in a way that rather than furthering our happiness, it's keeping us spinning in confusion. What is it that the Buddha is talking about? What is it we're doing here that can lead us, that can open us into experience of real happiness? It's a common misconception, and I find myself, when I'm not really being aware, falling into it often, that meditation practice, or this process 
of purification, as Joseph was speaking about it last night. The misconception is that somehow we're, through meditation, through purification, we're going to create in ourselves or in our minds a subtler, more uh, eternal kind of state. We're going to create some transcendent other reality in which we will live, from which we will relate to this mundane world of affairs and somehow, I don't know, float on a cloud somewhere or be the serene Buddha in the midst of it, but that somehow we've got to create something different. We've got to get away from who we are, from what we are, from what's happening now. And what we begin to awaken to, if this is a practice of awakening, Buddha really means one who is awakened is we're awakening to the fact that this is a much more radical, to my mind, proposition. We're not trying to get out of this reality, create some other reality from which we look back, but that we discover that that which we're seeking, whatever way you describe it to yourself, maybe you don't even describe it to yourself, but somehow there's an impulse for happiness or unity or completion or something that drives us on. And what's so radical to me about this practice of awareness is that it allows us to begin to awaken to the fact that that which we seek is always and only accessible in the immediacy of the here and now. Whatever experience happens to be represented as here and now, that we're awakening into fullness of presence, to full aliveness, connection, and acceptance of this moment, fully, totally this moment, and in that is where true peace and happiness can be found, never by looking to something else to somehow create another reality. So whether it's an itch that's arising, whether there's sadness, whether there's total boredom, or doubt, or just the pure breath, or ecstasy, pain, a footstep, it doesn't matter what. Each experience, as it arises, is like a a messenger. It's like a calling to say, awaken now. I'm your gateway in this moment to the possibility to awaken to my essential inner completion. And in moving away from this pain, in moving away from this happiness, in in any way trying to construct something other, we're effectively bringing down the blinders and not noticing what is always accessible to us. And that's the paradox to me, to everybody, I guess, of spiritual practice, that if our truest nature this pure awareness, in a way, Joseph spoke last night, of pure awareness that is absolutely untouched by any arising experience. If this pure awareness is always present and accessible to us, why don't we notice it? If it's so obvious, and this is the paradox of practice, is said this way in one Tibetan text. I, I just love this little poem not knowing that this state is within oneself, how amazing that one searches for it elsewhere. 
although it is clearly manifest like the radiance of the sun, how amazing that so few of us see it. No matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing that this Buddha mind is never impaired or improved on in the slightest. This self-awareness is naturally free from the very first. How amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease in whatever happens. Just resting at ease in whatever happens. It's so simple. Why do we have so much trouble doing this? Just resting at ease with awake intelligence and quite accepting open awareness within whatever happens. Not our natural inclination, is it? Yet we all have moments of it. Again, Joseph referred to a moment like that in his talk last night. Someone mentioned it to me today. A moment where there's just a sense of ease, of presence. It might be, as Joseph was talking about, where you feel so vividly awake and connected and somehow the shimmering leaves of the tree seem so exquisite. Or someone mentioned today just really being present for eating, being with one's meal, maybe for the first time. Or it can happen just taking a footstep. There's just a sense of such peace, such ease, such presence. It can happen, it doesn't matter what we're doing. And if you're paying attention, we all experience moments of this, more or less frequently. And what these moments are pointing to is that it has nothing to do with what's actually happening in that moment. The leaves of the tree aren't suddenly more vivid. The breakfast wasn't suddenly a superior breakfast to anyone we ever had in our life, you know. That footstep wasn't somehow different, you know, from other footsteps. But we tend to take that moment and instead of noticing just that ease, that awakeness, that vivid awareness that has nothing to do with what's happening but knows what's happening, we instead tend to fixate on sort of the wrong thing. We tend to keep looking to changing conditions. So somehow if the leaves were beautiful and it was two in the afternoon, we'll try again at two in the afternoon when the sun's a certain way and we've had a cup of tea to go look and see if we can hit that space again. Without realizing that, it's got nothing to do with those external or internal conditions. It's only that in that moment there was an awakeness and a heart and mind that was free of resistance, free of grasping or clinging, that was in no way reacting or trying to change or resist what was happening. Just total awakeness and presence. That's really what allows us to rest at ease in what is happening and to notice the potential for serenity and peace within whatever's happening. So if you have a moment like that, see if you can just notice the whole show and not fixate on the changing conditions. Because that's our tendency. Whether it's so-called external conditions, the weather, the way we're sitting, 
the clothes we brought, the way other people behave, the food we're eating, you know, the schedule, whatever. We tend to focus on those conditions as what can make ease and peace possible or not. They might be more or less pleasant. And again, we're confusing pleasant with true happiness, with peace. We do the same with internal conditions, our state of mind, our thoughts, the absence or presence of physical discomfort. Trying to somehow arrange and manipulate these conditions and if we can get them somehow in the right order, in, in, the, in the right coming together, then, ah, this is peace, this is happiness. And all the while not noticing, although it's so obvious we would all agree when it's pointed out, but not noticing that there is no condition, so-called external or internal, that lasts. Everything is changing. If we're positing any sense of happiness, any sense of true peace on any changing condition whatsoever, we're in trouble. But because things change so fast, it's always easy to say, well, this one didn't do it, and somehow our mind leaps but the next one, or I can get this one back again when it changes, when it changes. And we somehow don't stop and look at what's really going on. And that's the whole purpose of our meditation. It gives us the clarity and the focus and the tools to actually begin to look inward and see what's going on. The Buddhists, it's said that the Buddha said on his enlightenment that he felt so much compassion for all of us in our human state because he could feel, he could see, that most deeply at the core, every person, every one of us, and it sounds simplistic, but I, I really believe it's true, that at our deepest core, each of us truly wants to be happy. But through our not seeing what is so about ourselves, about the nature of the world, through not really understanding what is so, all our efforts, not all, but many of our efforts to bring happiness to ourselves and others actually only succeed in increasing our confusion, in increasing our sense of struggle, because we don't, again, know what true happiness is. This is from a psychiatrist who's been also a practicing meditator of Buddhist for a long time, Mark Epstein. <clears throat> and he's talking about happiness, saying that his experience as a psychiatrist trained in Western medicine and in the philosophy and practice of Buddhism has given me a unique perspective. I have come to see that our problem is that we don't know what happiness is. We confuse happiness with a life uncluttered by feelings of anxiety, rage, doubt, and sadness. But happiness is something entirely different. It's the ability to receive the pleasant without grasping and the unpleasant without condemning. He's saying happiness is the ability to receive the pleasant without grasping and the unpleasant without condemning. And I would actually go a step further. 
that that non-reactivity of mind in any one moment, we're not talking about like this every moment of life, just take one moment when there's this total receptivity, non-reactivity of mind to whatever's arising. In that moment of alertness and stillness, that gives the potential, the possibility to recognize something much more true than our passing reactions. A place of awareness from which whatever arises is not a problem. So I want to talk a little bit about this habit of grasping at the pleasant and condemning the unpleasant. It's a very incredibly strong and subtle habit of our mind and what we can begin to notice using our tools of mindfulness and concentration is we can begin to see how these habits of conditioning are working on a moment-to-moment basis we can see how they arise how they lead us to certain forms of mental physical and vocal behavior and by paying attention we can see how those behaviors don't really work and how these habits of mind really aren't serving us. And so a lot of our practice is beginning to observe this. So taking it on a real moment-to-moment basis, it's not theoretical, you can really begin to notice how this happens. When we pay attention to what we're experiencing on a basic level of bare attention, In the Buddhist psychology, you can see there's six different experiences, sort of, that happen over and over. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's physical sensing, physical sensation, and then there's the whole field of mental experience, thinking, emotions, mental images. Those are talked about in the Buddhist terminology as the six senses, the mind being the sixth sense. And so all that's happening is these six things are arising over and over and over and over. And then we make up story, which is just another mental experience arising. So as each comes, say a sight comes, we experience it as being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. But this seems sort of, when we're not really looking, it seems sort of intrinsic to the experience. So I look out and they're seeing, and it's just this pleasant feeling. And without paying attention, the habit of mind is sort of moves to, oh, that's nice, I like it. And it could stop there, or it could really, I really like it, I'd like to go out and really be with it and see it more, this kind of grasping at the pleasant. And if it's unpleasant, the rain comes and it's cold, it's unpleasant, the body shrinks away, the mind kind of contracts, I don't like that, I don't want to feel this, let's do something to change it. And when it's neutral, most of the time, we tend to not even notice it. We sort of ignore it. And often, notice this in your experience, we almost experience the neutral as unpleasant and our mind will create something a little more stimulating to sort of wake us up. And these are the three, what the Buddha called the three unwholesome roots of mind that lead to suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion or confusion based on reactions to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now, this is so important because it's happening really almost every moment, and we're so used to it, and it happens so fast, 
that we don't notice that it's a habit of mind and it and the reactivity of mind to pleasant and unpleasant and neutral becomes like a filter through which we judge experience or evaluate experience so that without paying attention when you're sitting here and you have a pleasant sitting pleasant it translates almost this is right this is good this is how it's supposed to be I've got to make it happen some more and when it's unpleasant we're restless there's a pain in the knee it's not only unpleasant it's wrong it's a mistake something isn't happening in the right way and we've got to do something to change it and when it's neutral forget it you know we just go off into daydreams and and watch sometimes we'll actually find our mind creating whole scenarios that are actually quite unpleasant as a reaction to hanging out with neutral in fact often in retreats people come in and start to talk about an experience and they'll say that oh nothing's happening and then I don't like it and they say, oh so there's calmness oh yeah I go calm oh I guess that's calm I don't know what to do with calm you know my mind's creating all these suffering scenarios we don't know how to be with neutral and in a way neutral can be so pleasant so wonderful Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about that he talks one example is he talks about when we have a toothache it's so painful it's so unpleasant and when it stops it's like ah how wonderful no toothache but when we don't have a toothache most of the time we don't have a toothache do we even notice anything you know tune into your teeth it's really nice if they're just kind of neutral you know it's actually quite pleasant it's peaceful but we don't notice that I was at a a movie a few weeks ago I, I don't even remember the movie but it just the coming attraction was for Die Hard with a Vengeance <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen the coming attraction it just is like it starts with this humongous explosion that practically blows you three feet back in your seat and it just gets worse from there just so intense and I was just thinking my god you know that's our culture no wonder we don't know what to do with calmness or with neutral experience you know we're so hyped up in this culture that it just has to keep trying to get more and more intense just to get our attention you know well that's a little aside but anyway <clears throat> noticing really begin to notice notice in your experience have you found that this sense of if it's pleasant becomes a basis for your whole evaluation of how your practice is going becomes a, a, a filter for your self-judgment you have a really so-called good sitting meaning basically it's pleasant how many of you have had a sitting where you were really restless where there was pain in your knee where your mind was wandering and you came away and said that was a really good sitting but we have to have sittings like that there's no such thing as only pleasant I don't know if you've noticed this in this life but there's no such thing is only pleasant but somehow we tend to operate from thinking that that's a mistake and somehow we're going to fix it well our retreats just the same way there's no such thing as only pleasant when you have a sitting like the unpleasant one I described it's so common the evaluation is this is wrong I'm not doing it right I'm a bad meditator or we reverse it out this is the stupidest practice I ever heard of and clearly they don't know what they're talking about it's a waste of time 
either way, but there's no sense of there's no sense of equanimity. There's no sense of peace, of spaciousness. We're making our happiness, we're making our rightness, we're making truth dependent on things being pleasant, meeting our expectations, being how they want. That's a setup, definitely, for, for deep suffering. Our practice lets us begin to see these. Without the awareness, it's like we just are living blindly following these habits of mind. It's like, it's like we're in the ruts on the road here. It made me think of when you drove in, um, Joseph and I and Grove and some friends drove in in two cars on, on Friday, was it? And it was really raining that day. And uh, so the roads were really muddy and soupy. And uh, Franz and I were in a car with two friends. It was just a rental car, some Ford rental car. It wasn't four-wheel drive, and it actually had a very low clearance. And so we're driving behind Grove's big suburban, you know, and we're sliding all over and really muddy. And the friend who was driving, he was, he was really good, but really going all over. It was tough. And each corner would come around and kind of be harder than the next. And Grove kept going, get in the ruts, get in the ruts, you've got to get in the ruts. And he finally stopped us and came back and said, Wes, you've got to get in the ruts. And so it it was really funny. Wes going, get in the ruts, get in the ruts, get in the ruts, you know. Finally, bang in the ruts, you know, and then you're really stuck in them. And I really felt like that's sort of how we are when we're following blindly these tendencies. Because for our car, the ruts didn't necessarily work. They'd work for a little while, and then suddenly there'd be this huge hump, and the whole bottom of the car felt like it was scraping off, you know, and Wes is going, oh no, the oil pan, the oil pan, you know. He's going, get out of the ruts, get out of the ruts. <laughs> the whole thing was just this dance of, you know, and you're in the ruts. You can't get out of them anymore. So what our practice really lets us do is begin to see the ruts and how they're working, this rut of blindly following for, for pleasant, for pleasure, of blindly moving away from the unpleasant, of totally spacing out when it's neutral. And when you can see the ruts, sometimes it works. Like Joseph said, if your hand's in a fire, it's a good idea to follow the moving away from the unpleasant. But there's plenty of times that it just doesn't work. There's plenty of unpleasant experiences that we're not going to be able to move away from. So when we can see how those ruts work, you can also see when it's helpful to move out of the ruts and you have the whole field of experience and we can act and respond appropriately, not out of blind reactivity. Because if you reflect on it, watch over these days, how much of our physical and mental activity is just to forget ourselves? How much of the time are we physically or mentally just blindly trying to move away from discomfort, trying to get away from something that's unpleasant? There was a, there's a whole a little practice in Vipassana that one teacher in Thailand used to teach, which is just every time you move throughout the day, watch why you move. And how much of our movement is just as a slight discomfort comes up and we move. Not that we have to stay in hurt, I'm not saying that, but just begin to see how much of our activity is a mask for slight discomfort how much is trying to move towards pleasure. And as long as that works, you know, if this was a good scenario, if this worked, none of us would be here. So it's to find within that how we don't have to be so driven, how we don't have to be caught by this dualism. 
So this is where our, our mindfulness and concentration begin to serve us, begin to help us learn how to see through this conditioning over and over. And that seeing through gives us the space to respond appropriately. So the, the mindfulness, there's a couple of aspects that we've talked about I just want to emphasize. The first is this quality of bare attention, this bringing the attention into the actual experience that's arising, whether it's a physical sensation or a sound or a sight or a thought or an emotion, but bringing the attention into the actual experience rather than confusing the interpretation with the experience. And the only way we can do that to come into the experience is is when the mindfulness is held in an air of kindness, really of softness, of loving kindness and acceptance to whatever it is that's arising. So an experience comes up, say it's a physical sensation of pain in the knee, sort of like Joseph was talking about in the instructions today. Mindfulness is non-discriminating. It doesn't say, hmm, should I pay attention to this? Should I pay attention to that? As soon as something arises, the mindfulness moves directly to it in a non-discriminating way, but meets it with an attitude of real softness and openness. You could say affectionate curiosity. Just feeling, what is this? just being with it, without any preconceived notions. And the concentration gives us the focus to stay with the actual experience, the twinging or the burning or the twisting, as distinct from, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get to a hospital in time and what if it rains, it takes hours to get out of here. That's not the experience. It's just a twinge. It's amazing the transformation that can happen when we use our mindfulness to be with the experience itself, it changes our whole relationship, not only to it, but to everything else. I'll give you a little example. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was teaching a retreat in Barry, <clears throat> and for some reason, I was ex- very physically tired and heavy, quite exhausted, but I couldn't find any reason for it. I wasn't particularly overworked or anything. And I lived just about two minutes down the road by car, so I was driving home and I was aware of I knew that I was tired and feeling like the physical heaviness but it wasn't mindfulness and the difference being that I was like oh I'm so tired I'm so heavy I wonder what's going on maybe I must be getting sick there must be some resurgence of disease. There's something really serious going on. I really hate it. I feel so horrible. There's eight more days of this retreat, and I'm so heavy. This is not mindfulness. This is really aversion and resistance, but often we can fool ourselves because there was also a knowing of the fact that I was heavy, and I was feeling the heaviness, but not with the bare attention that just feels the heaviness alone and not with the attitude of, affectionate caring, of open patience and acceptance of what is. It was a total interpretation. And I caught it, what I was doing. And just in a minute, all it took is just to say, oh, be with heaviness. 
I mean, that was kind of my, wasn't like, you stupid jerk, be with heaviness. That's also not mindfulness. It's just, oh, right, I'm thinking about it. And it's as if I let my attention just gently drop into feeling heavy and tired in my body. That's all. It just kept driving. And I saw that in that moment, although before I knew there was heaviness, the aversion, the way aversion works in the mind is that it will keep your attention a little bit away from the experience. Like, I know it's heavy, but let's just hold it over there and not quite really sink into it. Notice that when you have a pain, you kind of hover around it. We sort of look at it, but we don't want to quite go there. So just drop into it, full surrender, just feeling heavy and aversive and tired and fearful. No expectation of anything. It's amazing. The whole response to that changed. I just, oh yeah, heaviness, tiredness, that's okay. It was really okay. It didn't feel any different, but it was really okay. And all the other story went away. I was just being heavy, tired, and all of a sudden, without any kind of conscious volition, and this is what happens when you really uh, are mindfully open to what's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. The whole field opened up, and I thought, my heart just opened up. Oh, it's such a beautiful day. The spring was coming out, the trees were budding, and it just suddenly had this burst of joy and connection with the environment with what else was going on. That's really what happens when we open fully to whatever's presenting itself as truth in that moment. It's just the opposite of what we might think if we don't pay attention. I think that, it seems that, if I don't really let myself feel the aversion or feel the pain, if I can just a little bit keep it in the background, then things will be okay and I can kind of appreciate life more. And it's just the reverse. If we try to hold away the unpleasant, we can't open selectively. We can't, you know, ignore the unpleasant and open to beauty and connection. We need to be connected with whatever's happening. And when we soften into, oh yeah, unpleasantness, tiredness, boom, the beautiful day is also suddenly apparent. A sense of self-acceptance can also be there. It's just a moment. It's just a little thing. But that's what our life is made up of, just these little moments. And that's really what we're learning how to do with their attention held in this attitude of open-hearted acceptance. It cuts through these deeply conditioned habits of running away from the unpleasant and our ceaseless pursuit of, ple- of happiness through pleasure, which ultimately doesn't work. So the patience, the kindness, the acceptance is what lets us be able to come back over and over and over when there's a difficult experience. We also come back over and over and over when there's a pleasant experience, too. And we're not only going to the difficult, But it's important, and one of the reasons we tend to emphasize the difficult more is because our habit is much more ingrained to uh, try to avoid it. And it's this avoidance that keeps us closed to truth, that keeps us closed to true connection with our own selves, with our own hearts, and with that of all others. There's a saying, this is from Rumi, he says that paradise is surrounded by what we dislike. And the fires of hell are surrounded by what we desire. 
So we tend to go towards what we desire and land in hell. And if we can just open to what we dislike, we land in paradise. It's sort of somehow the opposite of the way we might think it is. So this, the more we can practice this, it's not like all of a sudden everything changes, but even one moment of this coming out of the rut of following habit and just this opening into what is, you can begin to see how transforming it is. It opens us into another possibility altogether for how we relate to ourselves and to life. And this is really what is the intonation of the potential for true serenity and peace. The possibility to be with things just as they are. To meet ourselves and our experience and others with a true kindness. Not the kindness of a kind of idiocy, you know, like idiot compassion or so, but the true kindness that by being with things in totality as they are, it opens our hearts and our minds to the potential for liberating understanding. It absolutely transforms our life because we meet, we meet things with a peace that is not dependent on having a situation be a certain way because there's no way we can control that. And it, it might seem like a long way to come from just noticing our reactions to pleasant and unpleasant. But this is very, it's very profound, as subtle as it is. This is from the Buddha. This might sound a little archaic, but see if, you, if it makes sense. He says, someone seeing objects with the eye, and then he goes through all the different senses, so we'll just talk about seeing. Someone who is attracted to things that are pleasing and repelled by things that are unpleasing, so stuck in these ruts. That person dwells without mindfulness and her mind is restricted. She does not experience the emancipation of heart through wisdom. But another person seeing objects with the eye is not attracted to things that are pleasant and is not repelled by things that are unpleasing. So she dwells with mindfulness present and her mind is unbounded. Thus she experiences the emancipation of heart through wisdom. Simply by being able to be so equanimous that we're not drawn helplessly into the pleasant and repelled by the unpleasant, our mind is unbounded. And we experience emancipation of heart through wisdom. To me, that's really a profound statement. And it's also very immediate. It's not like some impossible ideal a million years down the road. In any one moment, it's possible to see the difference between the restriction of heart and mind by being caught in desire and aversion and a moment of that boundlessness of heart and mind when we're just present without needing things to change. Really awaken that. This is not um, a kind of equanimity of indifference or a kind of gray, who can tell the difference is pleasant, it's unpleasant, who cares, I'll take whatever comes, 
I can't change what happens in life. This person's mistreating me. That's okay because it's all the same anyway. There's nothing I can do. I'm not talking about the you know, uh, kind of acceptance of resignation or defeatism or fear, but really that sense of unbounded serenity that arises from seeing things as they are. Actually, acceptance and patience, clear meeting what happens, is arises because of seeing things as they are. And so when we're seeing something clearly, if something is abusive or needs to change and it can be changed, there's the spaciousness in that clear seeing to know what can be done and the energy to do it, but it can come out of the intention of clarity and of caring about the whole situation, not out of just some knee-jerk reaction of fear or aversion. So this unboundedness of heart is not just some, you know, mishmash of grayness, of dullness, of who cares. It's so connected. It's much more alive and connected in life. So this, the mindfulness allows us to see things as they are on a moment-to-moment level, like, for example, seeing the way I saw the tiredness rather than seeing it as this whole immensity of some you know, horrible illness coming on that I didn't know what to do about. It's simply heaviness and aversion. And that's okay. It's just what it is. There's seeing things as it is on that level, and you can see how that loosens the restrictions of heart and mind. But it's also seeing things as they are on a, a, a much deeper level, the sense of the nature of how things are in this world, of what we really are, the nature of existence. Um, the Buddha often referred to it as the three marks of existence. But basically, it can come down to the uncontrollability of things in our life, the uncontrollability of experience, the fact that everything is constantly changing, that as long as something's pleasant, we're happy with it, it's going to go away. That unpleasant is going to come and that we can't change that. We keep trying to keep things the same and it's all totally out of our control. And as long as we're not really deeply living from that understanding, as long as we're caught in some sense of trying to keep things from changing, of trying to have some kind of control of this almost obsessive self-referencing of how every experience somehow refers back to me and how it affects me. As long as we're not living from understanding the uncontrollability, we're going to be caught in this suffering, in this confusion. But true acceptance comes as we begin to see this. The easiest one to talk about, and just the only aspect I want to talk about tonight, is this fact of constant change, which, again, we all say is obvious. I know things are changing. But looking at our experiences, do we deeply, genuinely live and respond from that knowledge? And much of the time, for many of us, probably not. Because if you look, this wanting pleasant experience 
or shying away from the unpleasant, in any way trying to manipulate and control experience, basically arises from not deeply recognizing impermanence. When we really, really know that however wonderful this is, at some point conditions will change and it will go away, that doesn't decrease our appreciation. In fact, the appreciation is all the more poignant. We can be all the more present with it because we're not somehow grasping, can I make it stay? When really unpleasant, painful, sad, grief-stricken experiences arise, no matter how hard they are, isn't there often somewhere in there the feeling that this is never going to change and I can't bear to be with this for the next 40 minutes, for the next year, for the rest of my life. Again, that's not being with a bare experience, but it's also not really moving from the fact that everything is changing and it's all out of our control. And we take it all so personally. We refer it all back to ourselves. So, for example, the weather, obvious. And in a place like this, it's so wonderful because the scope is so vast. Just the other day, it was, I think it was the day before you all came, and it was a pretty day, really bright and beautiful, and then suddenly, like this afternoon, rain clouds came just in a moment, it started pouring, and then just like that, it turned to hail, and there was just this really vicious, wild hailstorm for a while, and then just like that, it stopped, the clouds cleared, and it was so silent. And it was amazing, and there's moments like that where it's, oh gosh, totally out of control, always changing, that's so obvious, you know, and we can just see that that's how things are, and it seems who's going to try and change the weather. But as a a friend said to me last year, he's been really looking at this for years and years, he said, you know, it's just coming as a revelation to me. All this time I'm watching everything in the world is changing, the whole world is changing, and suddenly I realize, oh, It's happening to me, too. It's not me here watching everything else change. What I'm calling me is also a process of constant change. And that somehow, for many of us, is sort of the sticking point where we don't really quite open to the fact. I mean, even... um, with other other meditation teachers. We've been doing this stuff for 20, 30 years. We sit around going, oh my God, my hair is getting gray. Look at my wrinkles, you know. I have to wear reading glasses. Like, big surprise, you know. You go into your 40s and your 50s and your body starts to decay. What else did you expect? But somehow, it's amazing. It's it's a surprise. Well, you know, all of a sudden our parents are getting older and, and they're dying and somehow... We're the first generation this ever happened to. You know, it's, it's, it's totally amazing how hard it is to really take this in. <clears throat> I was, uh, I heard this interview on the BBC last year. Very serious. They were interviewing some man who had um, invested, I think, 300, no, I don't have, $150,000 in a company in Greece. That, that will freeze you when you die and then hold your body until, you know, I guess they can cure whatever you died from and then bring you back to life. 
and you have the option of either freezing your whole body or you can just have your brain frozen, you know, and that's cheaper if you just have your brain frozen. And this is very serious. This is people do this in, in $150,000. I think that's for your whole body. And they were interviewing one of them, the, an English man who, who had done it. He's very serious. But I wrote this down. I guess that's what he said. It seems quite a sensible idea. There's no guarantee, of course, but there's a reasonable expectation. It's amazing. A reasonable expectation of what? You know, living forever. And it's our culture, but it's not just this time, you know, it's, it's the world. And in opening to the, the constant changing, there are times, both in formal practice and also it goes into our lives, where as we open to it more and more, it's hard sometimes. You see why, why there's a resistance in our hearts and minds to really live from that because then there really is this sense of things ending so much and you can go through a, it's sort of like a phase of practice that can last a more or less amount of time where there's a real sadness about it a real sense of, of loss you know and in a way that's true but it's not the whole picture but I see why when I go through those times why there's this resistance it's because it's, it's the not wanting to feel sadness. It's just back to the same not wanting to be with what's unpleasant, being afraid of it. So there's times it's sad. But I know for myself that what's even more sad and more fearful is to live in that denial. Because again, we're denying ourselves the, the opportunity for a much deeper connection with ourselves and with all life. Because even knowing something's changing, well, then I'm so much more present for it. And the opening to change is our opening to connection and real tenderness and caring for other beings, too. Sometimes it's our tenderness that opens us to the truth of change. I just want to read you part of one poem. I'm going to skip some sections. But it's by Galway Canal, called Little Sleep's Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. <clears throat> you cry waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I've heard you, I've stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die, little moth. And yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this the nightmare you wake crying from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. But it doesn't just have to be sad and scary because when we truly, truly see this moment to moment in meditation practice, moment to moment in our life, when we truly see it, the clinging 
the aversion to unpleasant, the trying to keep things, is so patently useless and so obviously increasing our suffering that it's not like we have to talk ourselves out of it. It just stops making sense. It opens up. Again, this is the boundlessness of heart, the boundlessness of mind that can really be fully present for what is and can still be fully present when that changes. It gives us such a a serenity and a sense of happiness and peace and also a much deeper connection. So opening to impermanence can also be opening into great joy, a great kind of dancing, a playing in life. There's a, a story maybe you've heard of a, a Hasidic rabbi in Eastern Europe. I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a, it's a nice story. Um, early in this century, who was very renowned for his scholarship and his wisdom, and a young student from another country came to visit him, and he was sitting in the rabbi's house talking, and he was quite, the student was quite astounded by how simply the rabbi was living. And he's looking around and he's saying, but you know, you, you've lived here so long and you're so renowned. Where are all your things? Where's your books? Where's your furniture? You know, where are your clothes? And the rabbi said to the student, well, where are all yours? And the student said, well, I'm just passing through. And the rabbi said, well, so am I. <laughs> that kind of whiteness with life. Our practice here, even the little nudgy stuff that happens, you know, the little twinges, the boredom, the restlessness, not to mention the obvious sadnesses and pains and difficulties we go through, or the happiness, or the boredom, It's all microcosm for what's happening in life. It is our life. And the way our heart and mind is relating to these little things is exactly the way we're relating to the bigger, more complex issues in our life. This kind of tears it down and lets us begin to cut through the complexity and come into the bare experience and see the conditioning and to give us moments of a potential to move out of that conditioning, to respond in another way altogether. So even when you think your practice is so-called bad, because nothing that you want to happen is what's happening, not only is that good practice, sometimes we say that's the best practice, because that's where we're going to be able to break these chains of getting lost in pleasant and unpleasant, and constructing a sense of who we are out of that. So, in a way, each time that you just open for a moment into a pain in your knee, you get too intense and you move fine, but a moment that you're just with it as it is, That's the moment where we're coming out of confusion, where we're learning not to be deluded by changing conditions, where we're learning that even for that moment, oh, there's a possibility of real ease and freedom, even when something unpleasant is happening, even when something pleasant is happening, even when nothing particular is happening. 
And again, it's not, this acceptance is not that of kind of blind dullness. It comes from clear seeing and it gives such a courage, such a strength of understanding that you'll find even here, it gives us the courage of clear seeing but also the compassionate heart to soften into what is not to be hard about it, not to try and push it away. The energy of compassion to respond in a way that's appropriate. And whether it's a pain in the knee or whether it's later in our lives, some situation that comes up that we can't change, that seems beyond the bounds of endurance, whatever that is for each one of us, there might be a moment where with the the courage of clear seeing and the kindness of compassion, we'll find that even the unendurable is possible not only to endure but to have some some moment maybe of serenity within it. That ultimately our true happiness and peace has absolutely nothing to do with what is happening internally or externally. And all our efforts to change things They can be useful in the world of cause and effect. It can be useful in the functional world. I'm not saying give up our work, but understand where it's coming from, that it can come from the compassion that arises out of knowing that as much as we do to help people, to help the earth, to make things better, and we can have some real effect, at bottom, the true peace is going to come from being able to rest at ease in how things are, so that when we can't make a difference, when we can't change things, we don't have to give in to despair. We don't have to give in to frustration and come back from anger and confusion and pain. When we can meet life with the serenity that that rabbi was meeting it with, then all the energy that previously goes into struggle and fear and confusion and rage, all that energy can go into action, into relating to the world, into relating to ourselves, into really dancing with whatever's happening. So much more energy is available to us from the space of wisdom and compassion. So hang with it when your knee hurts and you're bored and you're sleepy. It's not really just a stupid, boring exercise. It has much more impact than might be apparent. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.